Amen, indeed. On the third day, this is John chapter 2, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Is that a good or a bad thing? What do you think? Good? Good? Pretty good. Uh, If Eric were preaching, he would talk about his son Luke, who's been invited to more weddings than there are days in a year, I think. Uh, So some people get, you know, depends on what sort of gift they expect. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. She was probably pretty tactful, so she probably didn't shout it across the room for everybody to hear, but understanding that would have been an embarrassment for the host, she probably, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. As a quick aside, woman is not as insulting as it sounds in our culture, so don't think Jesus is being rude to his mother here. He's addressing her appropriately. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. If you recall from the last two weeks of reading through John, we started in the beginning with John, the author's monologue about who Jesus is, this one who is the very word of God, who is God, whom all things have been created through this light that has come into the world even though the darkness has rejected it. And then in the second part of chapter 2, we see not John the author, but John the Baptist and some of his disciples gathering, garnering interest in this man Jesus and what is this stirring reputation growing around him. But up until this point, Jesus has done nothing except let some people come to his house with him. Am I mistaking? I think that's it. That's all that happens. A lot is said about Jesus, but he hasn't done anything. They have no more wine, his mother says. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. His mother was being rude to Jesus. Jesus was clear. He didn't want to do anything. She made the servants listen to him, put him in charge. Do whatever he tells you, she says to the servants. Nearby stood Six stone water jars, jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. So any quick mathematicians in here, how much water did we have? What is this? Six times 30. It's not that hard of math. Come on, let's go. 180, there we go. 180 gallons. That's a lot of wine. It's not wine yet, it's water. Just wait. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, 
everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Has anyone heard this story before? Yeah. Has anyone at least heard rumors of this story before? One of the most famous that there is. It's kind of peculiar because it only takes place here in John's Gospel. Um, we, this morning, I'm going to quick here at the top address what I believe is the most important aspect of this story. Why John puts it here. And again, like I said before, Jesus has done nothing up until this point except get talked about. The first thing that somebody does, especially in kind of a biographic telling of their life like this, often signals a lot of which is to come. This is an extremely important story. I'll get into why in just a moment, but it's not the bulk of what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about two lesser important things that are maybe a stretch, but we'll get there. Don't worry about it. So first, let's look at the situation. And I want you to see this situation with me, with us, with the people who are possibly at this wedding. A few clarification, clarifications. The master of the banquet, the one who tasted the wine, who was served first, likely the father of the bride, right? And he goes and he calls over to the bridegroom. And he says to the bridegroom, usually they serve the worst wine last, serve the best first. But you've saved the best for last. In other words, who is responsible for the wine? The bridegroom, right? And who is he talking to? His to-be father-in-law. Any pressure? That's all. A little pressure here. And far more than that, Israeli culture, Middle Eastern culture generally, still to this day, is rich and profound in hospitality. So not only is this bridegroom marrying a bride, trying to live up to the expectations of his father-in-law, but the whole culture has this deep and profound expectation that if we show up to your event, even if we show up to your house unannounced, there's going to be food and drink for us. It's pretty beautiful. So if the wine is gone, not only is that bad because the wine's gone, that's bad enough in itself, what else is this a profound symbol of? This is embarrassment. This is deep, profound embarrassment. They did not plan ahead. They do not have enough. How in the world is this bridegroom going to be able to take care of a bride if he can't even throw a wedding party? You see this? It's an embarrassment of his ability to be a hospitable person, to be a host. It's also an embarrassment of his wealth, right? Is this boy too poor? Is this person one who ought to be considered impoverished? What is this scenario? Furthermore, wine, in general terms, right, is a representation of a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of celebration. It's a symbol of excitement. It's a symbol of community, this bringing together joyfully. 
It's a symbol of abundance, even blessing from God. Amos 9, 13 through 14 reads this. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. We'll go to the next slide as well. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. And this is just one of many, many, many examples. Wine in and of itself is this symbol of the abundance of the blessing of, of, of God. So, if the wine runs out, what's the symbol? If the wine runs out, if, if, if wine represents hospitality, right, joy, welcome, abundant, blessing, and it's gone, you feel the moment a little bit? Plus, they didn't have wine, and that's bad in and of itself. But Jesus is there. Jesus is there, and as the very first act of his ministry, he says, all those things that are missing, I can do something about that. In fact, I can do something profound about that. And he looks at the servants and he tells them, those ceremonial jars that are meant for cleansing, that are meant for refreshing, for cleaning, for renewing, for restoring, Fill them up with water. Open them up and go hand them out to whoever's most important. Jesus tells a parable in all the other Gospels, but not this one. Matthew chapter 9, if you want to read along. Mark chapter 2, if you want to read along. Luke chapter 5, if you want to read along. He's talking about fasting, and he tells his disciples when the bridegroom is around... Nobody fasts. Everybody eats and celebrates. But when the bridegroom leaves, then they fast. And then he goes and he transitions and he talks about wine and wineskins. And he says, you don't put new wine into old wineskins or it'll burst open. But you put new wine into new wineskins. Jesus, here in this little itty-bitty mini miracle that only affected a small group of people gathered at a wedding signaled to the whole work that he was going to be doing in the world. That he wasn't just coming to perform a miracle, but that this miracle itself was a sign. Remember that word. It'll be important throughout the whole of John. This miracle itself is a sign to something bigger. That through Jesus, God is authoring a new covenant, a new wine, where abundance, blessing, hospitality, any of these things, joy, will not ever be again in lack, but will in fact be given again in full. He says, while Jesus' hour had not yet come, Jesus' hour had not yet come, just in the same way that we are awaiting the day that he will come again as our bridegroom, but he was once again, at the context of a wedding, saying, this is what's going to happen I'm making a new wedding full of abundance. <clears throat> Jesus, our bridegroom, 
In fact, it foreshadows this so profoundly in John. We'll read this near the end of the year. But in chapter 19, the very next time Mary, his mother, shows up is at the foot of the cross. As if John is making sure we don't miss this connection between these two moments. Here, she asks for him to do something about the lack of wine. Fills up jars full of it. She disappears for a while. And then at the end of the story, at the very foot of the cross, she is there. Jesus receives a sponge dipped in sour wine. He drinks it. And he says, it is finished. And the work of Jesus is bookended by a wedding and by joy and by abundance and by a sign of this new covenant. That's the most important thing. Pretty cool, huh? I think that's pretty cool. Both from storytelling, also from significance. We're going to detour, though. I want you to remember that. Don't forget that. That's important. That's the most important thing. That's what this story is here for. But we're going to detour, and we're going to look at two case studies in this story that I think are going to significantly impact not only the way that we read the rest of John, but also the way that we live, hopefully today, and certainly going forward. And after service, as we've been doing for the last little while, we're going to have a prayer meeting. And as these concepts are largely built around prayer, I'm going to ask you to pay attention very carefully to how you might be being called to pray. The first case study is Jesus's mother. Her name's Mary. Heard of her? Mary's our model in this story. The first thing Mary does, what's she do? We talked about this scenario, embarrassment, shame, right? She looks out, and what does she see? That. She sees a problem. She sees a need. And how does her heart respond? With with compassion, right? A trait that Jesus exemplifies throughout his whole life, too. He looks out, and he sees those who are in need, and he has compassion. Mary looks out, and she sees a need, one that may seem trivial, but that to those whom she cared about was deeply profound. And what can Mary do about it? What do we know about Mary? She's a widow. She had a child as a young girl. She's probably ostracized because she was considered, um, you know, to have had a child out of wedlock. Can Mary go to the store and buy more wine? Probably not. What does Mary do? She looks at the one whom she trusts the most, her son Jesus, and she says, do something about it. She trusts her relationship with Jesus, that she can make and ask of him. Do you think Mary knew it wasn't Jesus' time yet? Do you think she paid close enough attention to him to know that he hadn't really begun yet? I would suggest so. Did she care? Nope. She saw people who had a need. She had compassion on them. She said, you can do something about this. Do something about it. I trust you. And because you're my son and I raised you, and you kind of raised me because of the way he's also God and like how that works, I know you have compassion. I taught that to you. You're teaching it to me even more. She looked and she saw a need. And so I want to pause for a second. I'm going to give you a little bit. And I, if, if I want, and I do want, I'm going to go around and I'm going to ask, what need do you see? 
keep it confidential. Don't share anything that's going to offend somebody. What need do you see in the world, in your own life, in the life of your child, in the life of a friend, in the life of an enemy? What need do you see? Raise your hand. A need for Jesus? <laughs> Same thing, yeah. Why? What do, they, what do we need? Uh, we need his blood on everybody. We need his blood. On everybody. His freedom, right? What were you going to say? We need the, uh, fellowship. We need fellowship. Anyone see someone lonely? Yeah. What else do we need? Salvation. Salvation. What else do we need? Hope. Hope. Love. We need love. Compassion. We need compassion. We need joy. We need peace. Can you think of any specific examples where we need peace? <laughs> There's a couple. Yeah, pick one. Ukraine. Ukraine. Families. Marriages. We need less judgment. We need unity. We need healing. We need forgiveness. We need healthy connections. Empathy, sympathy. You're all very ethereal. These are phenomenal answers, but I have a feeling some of you are keeping secrets. <laughs> and if I came to your house and I said, what do you need? The answer would be a little different. These are phenomenal answers. What need do you see? Is it just you or is it another? When you drive around Colorado Springs on your day off or on your way to work, do you see any needs? A couple? When you open, I won't say a news source, dare I offend somebody. <laughs> when you open your preferred news source in the morning, do you discern needs? When you wake up, whatever stage of life you're in, with whatever people you go through life with, do you feel needs? Do you feel their needs? When you send your kids to school and they come home and they don't want to talk to you about what happened, do you feel needs? I mean, we could stay on this question for a decade. The first thing Mary does, she is in a spot. She sees the need and she has compassion. And then what does she do? She says, Jesus, do something about it. <laughs> I can't. What is Mary doing? What word do we call this? We have one word for what Mary is doing. She's delegating. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> Sermon's done. That's good. <laughs> She's praying, isn't she? She had the advantage of Jesus being right next to her in flesh and blood. Is Jesus any further from us now? Jesus says, if you ask in prayer anything in my name, my Father in heaven will be faithful to give it to you. Mary's just praying. We call it prayer because we can't see God. But it's the same words. It's the same action. It's an address to Jesus Christ to do something. 
to do something, to give something that we don't have the capacity to give. She's praying. And she's making a pretty big ask. I don't give her the benefit of the doubt of having imagined how he was going to answer that question. I don't think she knew. Maybe she did. I just think she knew he needed to do something, and he was the best one to ask. And so she made what I would consider a fairly big ask. And this is the first phrase in the title of the sermon, Big Asks. Throughout the Bible, we just did a series on Galatians where this was spoken as plainly as could be. Faith is counted as righteousness, right? When Abraham uh, offered his life to follow the, the word of the Lord, it was counted to him as righteousness. Not what he did, but that he believed the promise of God. Jesus says, when I come and return, when the Son of Man returns to the earth and scours over the whole thing, will he find faith anywhere, right? In other words, to make a big ask of God is to say, Lord, I have faith that you're the one who can do something about this need that I see, that I'm compassionate about, that I don't have an answer to answer, but I believe that you can do it. And I, I'm ashamed to say that I think this way. I think some of you think this way too. We think that if we make just small little asks, if we make minuscule prayers, we're being more humble. We're being more righteous because we're being humble. We don't need much. We're not asking for much. What is God looking for on the earth? Faith. What is faith counted as? Righteousness. So if you're unwilling to make big, bold prayers in faith, are you more or less righteous? You're less righteous. Towards any condemnation? Of course not, because of Jesus Christ. It's not how hard you pray that is the root of your salvation. But if you want to live like Christ, if you want to be like Christ, if you want to become more like Christ, if you want to have Christ in you, the hope of glory, ask big. Ask big. When you see a need in the world, one that you cannot fill, pray boldly. Make big asks that God will deliver. And God will see you, and he will say, there's the faith that I've been looking for. And regardless of his answer, which will usually be yes, he will at least count it towards you as righteousness. And so just to continue the brainstorming, a long time ago I asked, uh, or, or I, I spoke about prayer, and I gave uh, a few different types of prayer, just as, as guidelines for us to understand we talk a lot about soap. We talk a lot about intercessory prayer. We talk about listening prayer. I think all of these things kind of fall into these three categories. One is intercession. In other words, prayer on behalf of another. What is, and I'm asking you specifically, what is the big ask that God is calling you to make on behalf of another? A big ask maybe that you've been a little bit too timid to say out loud or even a little bit too timid to let your heart allow to speak to the Lord. What is that big ask of intercession, a prayer on behalf of another? This is what Mary was doing, right? It wasn't for her, it was for someone else. Take your time, I'll give you a second.
So first, what is that big ask on behalf of another, of intercession? The second category, what I call alignment. This has to do with either confession, confessing our sin or our need to grow, or maybe it has to do with learning how to walk in righteousness, a certain thing that we ought to be doing. Anything that aligns your life with the life of the Lord. Maybe the big ask for you in terms of alignment is to be forgiven of something that you've been unable to believe you could be forgiven of. Maybe for some of you it's a, uh, a mission or a call that you've been unwilling to step into. Maybe it's just a slight needling, gripping unwillingness to actually turn your life over to the Lord, whatever it might cost in the future, even if it remains unknown for a while. Maybe the Lord has been teaching you about gifts of the Spirit and you've been scared to step into them. Maybe the Lord has been teaching you about sacrifice and you've been scared to walk in it. What is the big ask that God is calling you to pray into on behalf of your life as it aligns with Christ's? And the third one are prayers of intimacy. Prayers that seek nothing but time with the Lord. Nothing but the presence of the Lord. Nothing but to experience mutually, back and forth, love between you and the Lord. Maybe the biggest ask for you is simply to feel more deeply the love of God for you. And you've been scared to ask that because you don't think that you'll receive it. Or maybe because you don't know if you can love back well enough or whatever it is. Is there a big ask of intimacy? I don't know of a single example of a person who has grown too intimate with God. (laughs) Ask deep. Ask profoundly. Ask bigly. Lord, would it be that we would be a congregation of big prayers and of big asks because we know your character, because we know your compassion, and because we know your desire to answer us, those whom you love. That's Mary. That's the first case study. Be like Mary. Second case study. Little less human, stone jars. Jars of clay, one of my favorite bands. These are not jars of clay, these are made of stones. The jars. What can we learn from the jars? They were just sitting there, doing nothing. Sounds appealing. The thing that we can learn from the jars, and this will be our last major thought. We'll expound upon it a little bit. But the thing that we can learn from the jars, I think, are these two things. One, they themselves were very humble. And two, they were ready. Kind of a silly thing to say. But Jesus didn't just conjure wine, did he? It would have been kind of funny to see. If there were no jars, if there were no cups... Maybe he would have turned his thumb into a spout and asked people to open their mouths like birdies. 
Maybe he would have just filled individual cups. Bloop, 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 bloop. But God has a way of enjoying his secrecy, and he looked for something that he could use. He looked for something that was ready, that was available, that wasn't already full of something else getting in the way. And what did he find? He found empty stone jars. And this is essential because as you pray bigger prayers, God is going to require of you bigger humility, and God is likely going to look for in the world a jar to fill up, to do something miraculous with, and then like we talked about with all these cups, to pour out again. Readiness, humility, and here we're going to talk about humility briefly as emptiness, and this connection between emptiness and a life of profound, big prayers. This is what is said of Jesus from Philippians 2, a passage we read all the time and are going to continue to read all the time, often considered one of the earliest songs of the church. Read this with your eyes, read this with your heart. It says, In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Read that again. Rather, he made himself nothing. Another translation is, rather, he emptied himself. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Amen and amen and amen. And let's go back to this phrase. He made himself nothing. And as silly of a thing as it is to say, the jars were like Jesus. The jars were like Jesus. And in being like Jesus, the jars model for us what we can be like. There's an incredible difference between what making himself nothing means. It's a Greek word, say it with me, kenosis. Kenosis. And being empty, the way that we talk about it in our language. Um, Think of it like the void. Sometimes we wake up and we just feel this unmanageable emptiness that we don't know what to do with, right? That's not the same as kenosis. In fact, that void that we feel inside of us is quite often the opposite of kenosis. It's a result of being filled up with too many things that are poison, that are detrimental, that just clog the system, right? Words that our bully in sixth grade told us, right? Words that our spouse who left us told us. Right? Words that we wish we didn't hear ourselves say. Things that we wish we didn't do. All that time spent in front of the TV. All that time spent on your phone or whatever it is. Reading books that are unhelpful. Whatever it is that you filled yourself up with that actually so clogs the ability for you to be filled with fresh water that you start to feel empty. Not because you aren't full, but because you're full of things that don't give you life. That's the void. That's what we call emptiness. Christ's emptiness was saying, I'm going to humble myself so much that I don't require anything but to know that I'm being used for the purposes of the Lord. 
I'm going to give up my right to whatever it is that I think that I deserve, that TV, that angerness, that bitterness, whatever it is. I'm going to get rid of those things because the Lord can then fill us up. Those stone jars, what were they used for? Ceremonial cleansing. In other words, they had been scrubbed. Imagine if Jesus found jars that were not clean. How would that wine have been? The best of the day? Muddy? But we can be clean jars. We can be cleansed by the blood of Christ, that wine that's poured into us. We can be ready to be filled. Kenosis, this good kind of emptiness, is not just a blocking everything out so that nothing gets in, but it's an awareness of your whole self that it belongs entirely to the Lord, once again, for whatever His purposes are, knowing that as I pray, that as the Lord Himself prays and intercedes for the world, He's looking for someone to fill with His Holy Spirit to do something great. A humble emptying. So how do you become a jar? That's it. You give it all up. Instead of choosing to fill yourself with things unnecessary, let them go and say, Lord, I'm open to you. Instead of choosing to do nothing and sitting back, be ready. Ask big prayers and trust that the Lord will fill you. There is... I've told this too many times, a question, this is a story, a question I heard somebody ask a long time ago, and it made me so mad because it was such an annoying question. <laughs> so I'm going to ask it again because I remembered it. But he tells this scenario, right? All right, you're at a big party. Um, you go to the juice bar. You get a cup of juice, right? And you walk through the party, and uh, somebody bumps you in the arm. You spill your juice all over the floor. Why'd you spill your juice? That's the question. Why'd you spill your juice? And I'm like, that's such an annoying, guided question. <laughs> it's because you got bumped in the arm, duh. He said, no, 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 no. You spilled juice because your cup was filled with juice. What a terrible question. I hate that answer so much. <laughs> but the point is, the Lord, as we ask big prayers, is going to search the earth and he's going to look for faith and he's going to look for people to pour his spirit on and he's going to look for people through whom he can then pour his spirit out of. We want to be jars. We want to be people who are empty and ready. We want to be people who, even more than empty and ready, are ready to be filled with fresh water. And I can actually give you good advice on how to be filled with fresh water. Do good things. Pray good prayers. Right? Practice rhythms of faith and of discipleship. Spend time with other believers. Spend time with unbelievers. Practice compassion. Do all of these things that fill your life up. And if you get bumped and asked to be poured out, what will come out of you? At the very least, water. And that's really good. Clean water, fresh water for cleansing and for renewal. What else is possible? That as you get bumped... Something greater, something better, something that gives supernatural joy, something that points to the supernatural abundance of God will pour out and that people will be saved and that their embarrassment and that their shame will be washed away. 
I want us to be jars, chiseled and refined out of stone, made by the master craftsman who is God, washed and cleaned for the purpose of any ceremonial thing, ready to be filled with good, clean water, the streams of living water that come from the word of God, ready to be transformed into wine so that we might be poured out for his miraculous doings in the world that God's kingdom might come. Jesus says, any of you who ask for the Holy Spirit will be given the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, it comes back to this idea. Lord, that we trust that when we ask, you are eager and ready to listen. And so, God, I trust you. And we together, we trust you. That if we just humble ourselves to be shaped and formed by your word, to be cleansed by your blood, that you will fill us with good water and that you will turn that water into wine for whatever need it is that you point out to us in this world. God, I pray among the people for my own self that I wouldn't be ashamed to pray big prayers and that I would have a life of humility to match it. And God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to anoint these people, all of us together, by your Holy Spirit, to pray big prayers. And God, I pray that you would remove in us the fear of emptiness, this thing that seems dark and void, and alone. And instead, Christ, show us what your kenosis, what your emptiness, what your readiness can mean for us. How we can become in our own lives the very outpouring of your new covenant. How we can become, through the help of one another in your spirit, cause for celebration, cause for joy, cause for hope. That we would become that for one another as we become more and more like you with big questions, with big prayers, ready to be filled as good, clean jars for your purposes. Amen. Eric, I'd like to invite you up. We are going to as we have begun doing, continue to pray, and this space will become um, just as it is. It won't become anything. It'll stay just like this, Um, a sacred space for prayer and for worship. And as you've written down um, some of these big asks, as you've looked at needs, um, as you've written down prayers of intercession, as you've written down prayers of alignment, as you've just imagined them, as as you've desired to pray more deeply, to have intimacy with the Lord. This space is going to continue to be a space where we're going to do that. Um, I'm going to be up front, kind of helping guide, but I do want uh, to make sure that we can all pray together. Depending on who's here, we can use this mic to share corporate prayer for certain things. Our prayer team is going to be around as well. If you would like to receive prayer specifically for, for anything, privately or corporately, um, by all means, I encourage you to linger. Um, for the rest of us, 
who have places to be, who have children to go get. Um, I'm going to give a benediction in just a moment. I ask you to go grab your children from the nursery or from the children's classes. Children are welcome here too. We want our community to be a place where children learn how to pray really well as well. So if you want to bring them in, they're more than welcome. But we're going to open the doors so you can go out. In about four minutes, they'll close again. And we're going to continue to use this space, like I said, as an ex extended time of prayer and of service. Can I bless you? Would you stand to your feet? May the Lord bless you. And may the Lord keep you. And may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you, to give you peace in all of your comings and your goings. So as you go, know the face of the Lord bright and radiant upon you. And know his peace. Amen.